Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Real Tall Tales, a podcast where we believe every person has an unbelievable story, and we want to help tell these stories and keep them alive and make it part of the oral history in the digital age. We're your hosts. I'm Cassandra Young. And I'm Munir McJohnny. And if you're sitting at home or in your car or at work, and you're thinking that you don't have one of these stories we've been talking about on the podcast, the ones people tell at parties but no one ever believes, we bet you do. But even we'll admit, some people seem to have more stories than others. But why is that the case? Why do some people's lives seem so exciting and others, well, they're great, but they're lacking that thrilling and terrifying aspect of living on the edge? And it's all rooted in one central emotion, fear. The work of our guest today is what I believe to be a kindred spirit of sorts to this podcast. He's a seeker of these tales, and he's taken these incredible stories next level and created a prolific career out of examining why some people are thrill-seekers, daredevils, and adrenaline junkies who seek out fear, and why some aren't. So if you're wondering where you fall on the thrill-seeking scale, stick around, because we're about to find out about the adventures you can expect in your life. So Dr. Carter is a board-certified clinical psychologist and the Charles Howard Candler Professor of Psychology at Oxford College of Emory University. He's the dean of Oxford College, and his articles have been published in magazines such as Psychology Today and Women's Health, and he's appeared on programs like CNN Tonight, NPR's Shortwave, and NBC's Today Show. He's also delivered a TEDx talk on thrill seekers, and he's the host of Mind of a Motorhead, an NBC sports web series that examines the personalities of motorsport athletes. And he has written this book called Buzz, but his greatest claim to fame is that he was actually my professor when I was at Oxford. That is my greatest claim to fame. And I want to start off today asking all of these wonderful stories that you've collected. What is the craziest one that kind of always sticks in your head? That's the one that you always want to talk about. Probably the story that sticks out in my head the most is the story of a guy I call Wes in the book. And Wes is a guy who's just sort of your everyday guy, but he says whenever he needs to make a big decision that he loves going climbing. So he went to Ecuador to go up mm. to climb up a mountain. Maybe you remember the story in the book. And he got there the night before with the rest of the group and he started feeling a little bit sick. Turns out that he had mountain sickness. And so there oh, wow. wasn't enough oxygen in his blood. And he started turning blue. And he said that he was throwing up, and but he didn't want to throw up on the person below him. <laughs> in the bunk bed, so he swallowed his vomit. Oh, that is a considerate person to be <laughs> yeah, ill, but that's... still think of others. Yeah, so he's first and considerate. And the next day, he said he knew he was in really bad shape, and he was going to go up the mountain anyway. And he said, you know, I thought I might die, but I still want to go up this mountain. 
You know, it's interesting because you talk about thrill-seeking in your book, and we'll get into that more in depth in a little bit, but there is a test that you can take that Mm -hmm. you've created, and I took it, and I found myself answering one way to the questions and then having to re-answer them because I was answering for maybe 20-year-old Cassie, Mm. but the later I get in life, the less I want to do stupid-sounding, dangerous things, which is what that sounds like, but you have to also admire that level of, I don't know, is it courage, stupid bravery, challenging yourself? It's a little bit of everything. I mean, part of it is that we know from a psychological standpoint that these high sensation seekers, these thrill seekers are physiologically different. So they see and they feel fear in a different way. But like you mentioned, it changes over time. As we get older, as we have more to lose, we react differently to those things in our environment. So can you explain to everyone listening sort of the Mm -hmm. scale that you work off when we talk about thrill seeking or Mm -hmm. thrill seekers and daredevils? Absolutely. So this is a, it's actually a really interesting, really old concept that's called sensation seeking. And the scale that I use in the book is a brief sensation seeking scale, and it has four different pieces to it. And when you take it, and there's a version of it on my website that you can take, you give it a score that goes from eight to 40. So the higher the score, the more of a thrill seeker you are. And when I took it, I scored an eight. An so, eight, so an you eight. are very low. <laughs> so I sort of skim the bottom. Which isn't yeah. a bad thing. It no, just no, defines who you not. are. No, thank you for saying that. Yeah, I was yeah. like, one <laughs> is not better than the other. It's right, just, right. I'm trying to see which one I find with my results. I think I scored yeah. a 21. Yeah, 21. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah. Interesting. So I was a 34. Well, you actually made it into Dr. Carter's book, didn't yes. you? So. Yeah. So there's two different parts where he talks about me. One is because I eat really weird things. Part of that, of course, is culture. But the story that we talked about in the book is I love brain. So goat brain (laughs) is like the most delicious thing ever. I'm going to isolate that and and make it my ringtone for you. I love brain over and over again. So I always grew up eating brain and we call it in Hindi beja, which means brain. And I should know that. But when I was about eight years old, I opened the freezer because I always loved cooking as well. And I opened the freezer and I look at this chunk, this square block of brain. And I pull it out and I'm like, mom, what is this? And she's like, it's beja. And I'm like, no, no, no. But what is this thing right here? Because it literally looks like a science experiment where you just take a block of brain. And she's like, that's beja. Like we eat it all the time. That's the brain that you like. And I was like, oh my God, what the hell? Like we're eating actual brain. <laughs> like who are we? You know? And Did was you just, think it was just like those foods that are mislabeled like chicken of the woods yeah, and really mushrooms? Just, <laughs> I had no idea. Because when it's cooked in curry and stuff, like you don't really know what you're eating. So forgive me for, I don't know this, is brain really a standard ingredient in Indian food? I mean, does it pop up a lot? Is it like yes and no. America's version of a hot dog? No, no. So it's not that popular. Okay. Most people, you know, I would say there is a percentage of people who eat it, but it's still not that common. So you're you're okay. eating it maybe once or twice a year. So like, kind of like in England, they have blood pudding, which is made out of blood and yeah. fruit and all that. Okay. Yeah. So that's when I discovered that like this is what it was. And I was like, this is weird and we shouldn't be eating this. But it was just so delicious that I couldn't stop. But it also didn't stop you from. No, not at all. Giving it to somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. So my in college, my girlfriend texted me while I was in class and said that she was hungry. And I was like, well, I've got curry in the fridge. And she loved Indian food and she was not Indian. And I was like, we've got vegetable curry just because I wanted to see if she would eat it or not. And so she ate the entire thing. I get back home. Was she vegetarian? No. Okay. 
No, she just liked vegetables. And so I get back home and she goes, oh my God, that was so good. I ate all of it. She ate three servings of it. And I was like, what do you mean? She goes, that was so delicious. And she's like, I'm surprised that you had it because I described it to her as like cabbage because it looks like softened like cabbage. And I was like, so that was actually goat brain. And she was like, please tell me that's not true. And like almost threw up on me. And I was like, it's just in your head that you didn't want to eat it. And she thought it was the most delicious thing that she's had ever eaten. I wouldn't even know where to get Any, brain. Yeah. One of those Indian stores, you know, like they sell the whole lamb, right? They'll sell you like different pieces, the eyeballs, the tongue, the ears and the brain. So Dr. Carter, when you're talking to Munir about that, did you eat the brain as well? No. 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 As, as an eight. <laughs> as an eight. And so this sort of goes to show that being a thrill seeker is not just a about like, you know, adventure sports, you know, it's all about any kind of sensation that people are sort of out to experience. Right. And in the book, I also talk about how physiologically they're different so that we know that high sensation seekers don't tend to have as much of a disgust reaction to things. And so if you tell them, Mm. hey, you just had some goat brain, they're like, oh, okay. But someone that's a low sensation seeker, they're more likely to feel disgusted. Now, how is the difference between low and high sensation seekers developed? Is it something you're born with? Is it genetics? Is it life experiences? There's a little bit of different pieces of it. So they think about maybe 40 to 60% maybe genetic. Okay. And so there's some physiological things that are going on, but the environment does have a really big impact to it as well. So we know there's some cultural differences between different things seeming Mm. disgusting or not, of course. And there are some cultural things that can impact whether or not you're a thrill seeker or not. Now, I think, you know, interestingly enough, when I was reading the part in your book where Munir was talking about the baby octopus Mm -hmm. he was eating, Munir, you are the most disgustingly descriptive (laughs) person on the planet. I don't have the passage in front of me, but you, it's not like eating calamari. I remember that. It was like a tiny actual baby octopus. And you talked about it being chewy. And so if you are faint of stomach, you might want to fast forward 60 seconds, but do you have it in front of you? Yeah. So, um, can you read the description? Yeah, I'll read the description. So I say, but it's not cut up like squid or calamari. This baby octopus looks literally like they just pulled it out of the fish tank, threw it on the pan, and then it's in your dish. It's like a baby octopus. Like it looks like a baby octopus. Then you go on. Yeah, then I go on. That was the mild part. Don't yeah. try and skirt around it. <laughs> so it's very small, like maybe the size of a quarter. It's chewy. The head of it, it's almost like a chocolate Ferrero Rocher oh, candy. That was my favorite candy too until I read that, by the way. And then you talk about it being, yeah, super chewy and gooey. And so it's one thing, I think, to be challenged to eat a baby octopus or something that you haven't eaten before. But then it's another one you have a Munir. (laughs) I kind of wonder what exactly you told your girlfriend at the time about the goat brains. Goat brains, yeah. And it was interesting that you, you know, talking about genetics and the cultural influences. Mm -hmm. Generationally, I'm also curious, right? Mm, So is there a generational shift now because of social media where we're seeing this more of people are doing riskier things because they want to put it on the gram. Yeah, yeah. So there's a little piece to talk about in terms of, you know, we've always had thrill seekers. We've always had people who've done things like this. Now there is a platform for people to do those kinds of things and not just get applause from people in front of them, Mm. but be able to get sort of virtual applause with likes from people all around the world. And we know there's some research that suggests that, you know, when you get a like on Facebook or Instagram or those other social media, it's almost like getting a smile from someone. We get a little bit of squirt of dopamine, which is that pleasure neurotransmitter when we see that. So people are doing it for the likes, but there also can be some financial incentives for some people to do those things 
things in certain cases as well. So do you find the role of the ego to play a part in it at all? So like these people who are, I mean, I see mm-hmm. online between 2011 and November 2017, there were 259 selfie deaths. That's from my very accurate, incredible source of Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah. But my point is, so people are doing these things for the likes, for the, right. the reward system in the brain, but does the ego and the look at me factor have anything to do with this attention seeking or are they kind of two separate camps? I think for some people, but for the bulk of the individuals I talked to and interviewed, these are people who are pretty prepared Shared, right. And so we don't see that part online. I think there are a lot of people who are very reckless. In fact, one of the parts of the questionnaire measures how inhibited you are or mm-hmm. uninhibited you are. And it doesn't worry me a lot if someone's a thrill seeker, but it worries me a little bit if they are sort of a reckless thrill seeker. That was what I found really interesting about the quiz online, which is not a long quiz, you guys, and we'll post it up on our Facebook page as well so you can take it. But some of the questions, I'd be like, yeah, I would do that until the last word popped up and was like, mm. it's illegal or something mm. dangerous. And I'm, right. Nope, I'm out. And I found that really interesting. Maybe that speaks to the recklessness that you're referring yeah, to. Yeah, and People often think of these high sensation seekers as risk takers, but they're not. They're not doing it because it's risky. They're doing it for the experience. And the risk is sort of the price of admission for what they need to Mm. do in order to get the experience they want. I've got a couple of speeding tickets. Can you come talk to the judge? (laughs) Is this an excuse that I can use? He's genetically wired to be a risk taker. So I recently got into a scooter accident. Okay. So in Atlanta, we've got, you know, the birds and and all of these things. And so I'm going super fast. Mm -hmm. And I'm a pretty big guy to begin with. And I tell people that I'm an uncoordinated risk seeker, which is like (laughs) probably the worst combination. And I broke my bone, tore three tendons, tore two ligaments. And I've been in a cast for like three months. I'm just impressed that happened on a scooter and that right. you also still tell people it was a yeah, scooter accident. And, I'm, I, and I tell people <laughs> like I was being stupid moped, on a scooter, maybe? right? Yeah. yeah. And the other day I see a scooter and I'm like, I kind of want to get on it because it's right. just, it's there and it was so exhilarating. And so it didn't deter me right. from getting back onto it. You know, and I've gotten, you know, knock on wood, I've gotten into my fair share of car accidents because I drive so yeah. fast, right? And you also done some research on kind of people who are thrill seekers tend to have these habits as well. Yeah, I mean, I've never been in a car accident before. <laughs> um, um, and <laughs> Level I'm, eight I'm not, to uh, run the world. Yeah. yeah, not driving home with you. We know that high sensation seekers, when they do get into those accidents and they actually can avoid them more often because they they don't freeze up you know, because they can know what to do. Someone like me, when something happens, I tend to get overwhelmed with the chaos. You are probably more likely to be able to sort of maneuver through that chaos. But here's the other thing. When something bad happens and you have an accident, you slip or fall, you have a scooter accident, high sensation seekers are more likely to bounce back from those injuries and try it again. Low sensation seekers, like we're out. We we, we get hurt and we don't want to do it. In fact, the idea of possibly getting injured, I'm not going to want to do it. Like if I see a chair that looks slightly uncomfortable, I think I'll just stand. I'll just stand. So it's funny that you say that because the accident that I got into is either that or I was going to end up on the road. And so uh, those were the two like situations that I had. And so in my mind, I ran like, like it didn't happen, but I feel like I ran calculations right. of like, you go into the road, you get hit by a car, 
just right. worse. So let's do this option B. So is that risk taking because high sensation seekers haven't developed part of their brain that like says, hey, this is high risk and this is that. And so avoid it. Or are they just willing to pay that, as you said, kind of as the entry fee for what they're going to do? Yeah, maybe the entry fee of what to do or the reward of doing it is more important, more important. than what could happen. And there's a story in the book about Roller Girl. You may remember that mm-hmm. where she would roller skate in downtown Chicago and she almost got into an accident. She didn't know how to stop. So she grabbed onto a light post and spun around it and she just she was laughing at the end of it. She thought it was hilarious. And she was telling me the story and all I could think of was like, you almost died. Um, (laughs) which doesn't seem funny to me, but for them, she's like, oh yeah, I would be fine. I mean, because they, a lot of these high sensation seekers, what they do is they just throw themselves into situations and they think I'll figure it out when I get there. I have so many, I mean, so many questions just stemming off this Mm -hmm. look at sort of the psyche of people, you know, do you find certain careers attract high thrill seekers? Like I could see you talking about being overwhelmed by the chaos as Mm -hmm. a low sensation seeker. I'm thinking of paramedics and firefighters and ER surgeons who like are thrown into chaos daily because Mania, when you talked about doing the calculations in the back of your head I have had a few instances not quite like near death but where I'm like okay these are my two options and it's like in my head in the background I feel myself weighing out the yeah. options of each one but I just you know almost automatically without thinking it feels like I'm not feeling right uh, thinking act one way because I know it's going to be the less risk situation. It's like I can look Mm -hmm, at it and do risk assessment and choose, but both are still risky. Right. Yeah. Where someone like me, what I end up doing is I have to make all those calculations before I leave. Interesting. So do you (laughs) You find that they gravitate towards certain careers? They can. I mean, sometimes it doesn't work out like they think. You know, a lot of the careers that you think of that are going to be these sort of thrill-seeking careers like military, first responders, most of the things they do are waiting around for things to happen and so they get really bored Uh. and then they end up creating chaos because they hate being bored Mm. (laughs) and so they end up getting themselves into trouble which can happen sometimes it's really funny there's another part in the book that we talk about my Mm. job history oh yeah yeah, and so after graduating in a span of maybe four and a half years I had seven jobs and they all start off great and then I just get bored Mm. and so I start doing things that I'm not supposed to and just taking more risk and start getting into trouble and then I'm like I gotta leave because this job's just not for me what did you say you you scored again on the test 34 and it's out of 40 this is explaining so much more about you yeah Munir is, for those of you who don't know, nonstop on like 1,700 boards and yeah. running nonprofits and companies around the clock. And I'm like, how do you, you do it all? But now I see like if you're trying to stave off boredom yeah. some yeah. way. I mean, I know your heart's in the right place right, and you're right. just yeah. because you love it. But, but yeah, but it is such a beautiful thing because yeah. so in the beginning of the book, you talk about how a lot of these individuals find tranquility and calmness in the chaos. Mm-hmm. And I've always found that, right? So when I'm busy and going, there's just a lot of peace mm-hmm. and there's a lot of tranquility. And I love that. And it keeps me so sane. And so it's so funny that something that seems so high risk and thrill seeking actually has the complete opposite impact right. of like peace and serenity. And I stumbled on it in almost the opposite way because I'm completely the mm. opposite. Since I left school, I've had two full time jobs. And so I'm just two. Just two. <laughs> Over, do you mind sharing over the course of yeah, how many years? And over the course of 30 years, wow. I've had two full-time Employers jobs. love you, though. That's a, that's a <laughs> yeah. level of dedication and loyalty. Yes. One I had for two years and the other one for the rest of the time. <laughs> so the first one was just a yeah. blip. Yeah. 
So talking about preferences, one of the parts that I loved in the book, and you talk about the roller skate girl who found it hilarious, mm. is comedy is also impacted uh, okay. by where you score on the thrill-seeking chart. You mean comedians or just so enjoyment of comedy? Enjoyment and the types of jokes that you enjoy. Yeah. So if you're a high thrill-seeker, then are you talking about the sort of jokes that the public might frown upon? Jokes, you know, that the, are yeah. offensive? They like kind of offensive and nonsense humor. So okay. things that are sort of out of nowhere, they find really funny. So like and slapstick so, almost, like walking into a pole and falling maybe down? Sl- or more like, like what kind of, I didn't ever ask you what kind of humor yeah, do you like? Yeah, so I actually, I have a lot of comedian friends and I mm-hmm. write a little bit of comedy. Oh, wow. So I end up going a lot of dark comedy, uh-huh. right? But it is that unexpected kind of joke. So it's funny in the book, you actually have scientifically <laughs> proven oh, yeah. the best joke in the world. In the world. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Well, what is it? So do you want to share it? Do you want me to read it? Yeah. Or do you want to read it? Okay. I can do it. So they did this study where they had people post different jokes all around the world and had people rate what they thought, how funny the joke was. And so this joke ended up being the funniest joke isn't that in wild? The world. Yeah. So if you don't think it's funny, it's you. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, Direct judgment. Yeah. <laughs> Psychologically. Okay. So a couple of New Jersey hunters are out in the woods when one of them falls to the ground. He doesn't seem to be breathing. His eyes are rolled back in his head. The other guy whips out his cell phone and calls emergency services. He gasps to the operator. My friend is dead. What can I do? The operator in a calm, soothing voice says... Just take it easy. I can help. First, let's make sure he's dead. There's a silence, then a shot is heard. The guy's voice comes back on the line and says, Okay, now what? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I love that joke. It's dark and it's, I like the unexpected angle of it, right? Right. (laughs) And it's not the kind of edgy I thought it would be either because I was sort of thinking about. Yeah. I know I think Dave Chappelle thinks that comedians don't really owe it to anyone to censor their work, whereas other comedians think that, you know, reaching for jokes about sexual orientation or rape and assault or what have you, it's low-hanging fruit and it's lazy comedy. So that's what I was thinking. But that's an out-of-the-blue, dark humor sort of Mm. joke. And I I love it. And I love it. And it's much more, I'm going to have to change it because my favorite joke is not as cerebral as that. (laughs) And um, do you want to hear it? Yeah, Yeah. I love it. Okay. Knock, knock. Who's there? Interrupting cow. Interrupting. Move! <laughs> I'm like 12. I love puns. I love stupid dad jokes. I Me love that too. joke. Yeah. Last time I told that joke, I laughed so hard I was <laughs> crying so at my funny. own joke and everyone was just staring at me like I was an idiot. Makes me laugh. I well, love and, it. And the reason why they love unexpected humor is if they can figure out the punchline, they're bored yeah. and they're sort of out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So part of what you talk about in here is that it's the tension and then the reduction of the tension. Right. And I thought that was so interesting because human beings, we get a kick out of the reduction of tension and mm-hmm. it causes laughter. Yeah, yeah. Right. Which is such an interesting response. So I love roller coaster rides. Mm-hmm. The first time I ro- went on a roller coaster ride, I was 12 years old. It was in Chicago and I was deathly afraid of them. I refused to go and my uncle literally dragged me, sat me down and buckled me in. And I was crying. 
and it was called a cyclone in Chicago Six Flags. And it had seven loops and seven spins. And I just didn't want to do it. At the end of that, I was like, oh my God, can I move here? Like I was so in love with it. And then I was like, every time I'm like, put your hands up, like, how do we make this scarier? Because right. it's not enough, wow. you know, because I already know what's going to come next. But it's interesting. So I felt the same way. Tower of Terror was one right. at Disney and I pretended to be too small so I couldn't get on the ride. <laughs> but then when I eventually rode it, loved it. But the older I get, it's not the rides. What I find my hesitation is I don't trust people. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I want to be like, have you had all the safety checks? Right. Now, Disney obviously will do all of that. But, right. you know, at state fairs or stuff like that, the rides I used to love, I'm like, I don't know if I, tr- I don't know you well enough to put my life in your hands. Mm. And so that's like part of the risk that I start to take into my calculations. Right. Yeah. And I think for a lot of thrill seekers, they want to be in control of that. Mm-hmm. And so they want to be the person when they're doing adventure sports to put themselves in those risky situations. Another person that's actually not in the book I was interviewing just recently, her website's called That Slackline Girl. Mm. It's like a tightrope, but it's like a webbed sort of... um, Like um, a rubbery tightrope that you attach to two strong ends of a thing and then you walk across it. Right. Oh, I've seen it. So a lot of people will do it between trees Trees. in their backyard, but I'm I'm betting she did it a little higher. She does it much higher and she also does it in high heels. Oh, wow. What? I can't even walk in high heels. Like literally (laughs) can be a flat surface and I'll roll my ankle. (laughs) And she's also been known to do it without any harness at all. Wow. See, that's what I don't get. And the tightrope walkers who do it yeah. without a safety net, that's the point where I'm like, oh, dumb. Yeah. Like, we've moved on from, like, thrill-seeking to natural selection, yeah. at, in my mind, at that point. <laughs> but that's because I'm not, they're probably 40s yeah. on your scale, right? So what did she have to say? She said that a couple times she did it, and then she said that she didn't feel like she needed to do it anymore. Mm. But for a while, she said that she felt sort of a need to do it. And for some people overcoming that fear of doing it. She said, if you drew a line on the ground and said, just walk on this line, you'd be fine. But take that line, put it, you know, 500 feet in the air and walk on it. The only difference is your mind knows that if you fell, you'd die. The stakes are higher. Yeah. Do you think it inhibits them in any way? Like it sounds to me almost like it's a not a compulsion that they act on immediately, but something that they can't get out of their head. Like for her to feel the need to do that, Mm -hmm. it's like feeling the need to put yourself in danger in order to get rid of this obsession. I asked her about it. I said, you know, what was it you felt like you needed to be able to have a sense of control over it. And she said, being able to control myself in that way, I felt like I could also control my... I think it gave her a sense of control in other parts of her life as well. Interesting. So it is interesting because, like, I'm a fairly, like, calm individual. And so I was telling my friend that I, like, you know, went to Six Flags and she was like, I wonder how you are on these rides. Like, are you just hanging out and chilling? And I am typically, like, I just have a big smile on my face. Yeah, I've, like, never seen your forehead wrinkle up in any other expression. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I've seen you smile. Yeah, and And that's it. And so even on the rides, I'm like, I've got this big smile on my hands in the air. And then we go through the ride and that happens. And, like, I don't really yell. Like, there's nothing. Thing, you know, and for me, it is this like, can I control my emotions mm-hmm. and I control myself in such a crazy situation? And it's just the exhilaration of that alone, mm. of what control can I have over myself during this time and just find that peace in it. God, and I'm the opposite. I just scream. I'm yeah. like on roller coasters. I'm like, I want to scream because it gets it all. That's right. how I yeah. get the tension out. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, yeah. I guess that's how I exert control. Right, is. yeah. And so now my new thing is like, can I control the butterflies, uh, right? And you talk about that a little bit in your book, which I really loved because you talk about how when you're in that flow state mm-hmm. and it's not just the typical fight, flight, but there's also the freeze, right? right which you've right. added into it. So talk yeah. a little bit about that because that's a new, we've always heard the fight or flight, but now there's a freeze that you're adding into that scenario too. Yeah, I mean, and... We've had that before, but people used to talk about the fight or flight response. You know, like think back when you were in school, if someone had said pop quiz, either, you know, you feel like running out, right, of the test, or hopefully you don't want to punch the professor. But what people (laughs) end up doing is they have test anxiety. So test anxiety is that freeze response and they sort of freeze up. But I think what people do more often is have that sort of freeze response. And so what a lot of people who are these high sensation seekers, they're trying to overcome that and being able to do it on the mountains or, you know, with, you know, wingsuit flying or roller coasters or roller girl, if they can do that in those environments, they feel like they have a sense that they can do it in their daily lives. Mm -hmm. And if you stop them from doing it, I think they end up getting more anxious and some of them get really depressed. Like Wes, the guy I talked about before, had an accident, a drunk driver hit him and his doctor told him he couldn't fall anymore. So he wasn't able to do a lot of the adventure sports he did for a while. And skydiving and stuff, you mean? Sort of like that kind right, of Right, any kind of falling. Yeah, okay. yeah. And he got really, really depressed. And so we talked for a while and he shifted a lot of the stuff he did from adventure sports to more travel and doing sensation seeking in terms of traveling and going to exotic places and eating different kinds of foods. And that seemed to boost him out of his sort of depression that he was experiencing. So there are several different types of sensation seeking. Can Mm -hmm. you speak a little bit about each of those as well? Yeah. When you take the questionnaire, you will get scores on one that's called thrill and adventure seeking. And when we think about thrill seekers, that's typically what we think of. Those are people who like to drive fast or roller coasters. That sort of danger is the thing that beckons the thrill and adventure seeker. And then there's experience seeking. That's sensation seeking of the mind and of the senses. So unusual foods or even traveling. I interviewed a a woman that calls herself the white rabbit. She traveled for 300 days with no exchange of money at all. And so she just sort of just went out and traveled. She scores very high in experience seeking. And then the last two measure to me how much trouble you get yourself into when you're sensation seeking. That's the boredom susceptibility, Mm -hmm. how easy it is for you to get bored. I never get bored. I can go into what I call screensaver mode very quickly and just sort of sit there. (laughs) You were apologizing for having me wait, which people that know me, I'm fine waiting for hours. And disinhibition, which is your how uh, uninhibited you are. And so different kinds of sensation seekers can have different profiles. And so they're not all the same at all. I mean, there's a big difference between someone that goes on a hang glider, which makes a lot of coordination to find the wind Mm. and lots of like, I need to figure out where to go versus a skydiver who basically just sort of throws himself out of a plane and pulls a cord, which I will never do. But there's a different kind of coordination and a different kind of person that tends towards each of those. You know, I wonder how much this really, because this is fascinating, look into sort of the psyche of humanity and Mm -hmm. how we're all different, but how much of an effect it has on cultural sort of commentary Mm -hmm. and the way we look at people's lives. Um, I don't know if you've heard of the TV show The Good Place with Kristen Bell. I love that show. So I won't give any spoilers away, but I just watched an episode where she accuses someone of having a basic suburban life and the woman breaks down because she does yoga then eats avocado egg rolls with her friends and drinks chardonnay with ice cubes in it 
And it's like not the life she used to have. But listening to all this, mm-hmm. you know, it's interesting. I could see how maybe high sensation seekers would look at a life like that and be like, that is literally my worst nightmare, you basic. Right, but right. someone who's a low sensation seeker, that life is perfect for them. Yeah. And I'm just, I just wonder how much, like if people really understood the different right. thrill levels that people are interested in, how much it would change our judgment of other people's lives. Because they might look at the people who mountain climb and say, why are you using dead bodies as markers because they do that mountain climbers do that that should be an indication to you that what you're doing you're not supposed to do you're risking your life and they'll look at them and be like go back to your basic betty chardonnay (laughs) you know see you next week well and to me it's even more than that because i know physiologically that high sensation seekers feel fear in a less intense way than low sensation seekers. And so we think about them as brave, but they're not really having the same fear response. So how do you measure that? So you can measure sort of physiologically in terms of like their heart rate, their blood pressure, and also their sort of physiological signs of fear. I mean, you can even ask them like, you know, how much of a, a reaction that you had. And so they did the study with cars where they had one car drive and another car follow the car in front of them. And they measured the person's physiological response as well as how much fear they said they were experiencing. Mm. High sensation seekers would follow the car in front of them really closely, but they're, they were chill the entire time. Not much adrenaline, not much cortisol, which is that stress hormone. And they said they were fine. Low sensation seekers, on the other hand, would follow the car in in a long distance. But they were also really stressed, even though they were three car lengths back. Ah, so even though there was a bigger safety padding, so to speak, and they were following like the recommended Mm -hmm. car length, you know, following the car, three cars behind, they had a higher stress level than the people riding on somebody's bumper. So their brain was telling them that they're in danger. The high sensation seekers brain is telling them you're fine. You're not in danger. Yeah. Interesting. So response and that really sort of changes how you look at it too because it's not about at that point bravery or courage it's a literally a physiological response yeah, right, right. so if you have and, no right. fear gene and this is for the extreme i mean there are very right, right, right. few right, people right. that don't have fear i mean you must you feel frightened sometimes yeah oh absolutely yeah. right like when Every i get into the car accident yeah <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing it's also i don't know if there's a optimism aspect to it because i just feel like it's all going to work out you know but i have gotten into several car accidents and just like yeah. you said it's because of you know these little things where i'm like right. oh, i'll follow a lot closer than someone else does right, it could right. be an interesting experiment for you guys to look at your uber or lyft drivers oh. and see how they go differently because they're clearly different ones and i've got ones who are like boom 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 and they're following the cars but I feel really nervous when someone else does it right, and I'm not right. in control. Mm-hmm. I want, one star high. Yeah. <laughs> high I want to know the sensation seeking scores of my Uber drivers yeah. now. And so I want to see. Like, that I would be a really interesting get in the car with another eight. Well, yeah. what, what's interesting, Muneer, is too, you're talking about you've gotten into these accidents. And I, I could understand like your one scooter accident and you want to get back up on the horse and ride it again, right. so to speak. But when it's happened multiple times, at this point, you're ignoring a learned response, right? So right. you know that this action could have a very likely outcome of this 
crash, and yet repeatedly, you, life thing. has proven over and over again yeah. scientifically, this is going to right, happen, right. and you're like, eh, I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah, and it's a terrible thing. So we talked a little mm-hmm. bit about this um, the other day as well. So I go to sleep late every single night, and every morning I'm like, I got to change that. You called me at 920 the other <laughs> night. I mean, I do get up very early for my job, but I was like, hello. <laughs> and he's like, were you asleep? I'm like, yeah, bro, an hour ago. Right. But your life it, is so different. Right, so different, right? And every day I I know, like I feel like I'm a fairly intelligent human being and I know the things that I do are going to have a negative repercussion on me later. Mm-hmm. Same thing with spicy food. I love spicy food. And there's a part of here where you actually talk about in the mm-hmm. book that high sensation seekers like spicier foods, but then I'll feel it in my stomach and I'll feel it, you know, and again, same thing. Tomorrow comes around and I don't learn from any of my mistakes. So are you still a high sensation seeker if you know that the spicy food's going to hurt you, but you don't eat it because of that out? Outcome? Like what, yeah, what differentiates yeah, yeah. it? Yeah. And so it's you're still a high sensation seeker, but it all boils down to is the reward worth the punishment? Mm-hmm. Right. And so you know that you love spicy foods, but you must like it more than you don't like feeling sick. Interesting. Because I always just thought there was a part of my brain that wasn't connecting the dots. Yeah, I was yeah. like, there's a synapse, there's just missing, right? Don't necessarily learn from my high risk taking I mean, mistakes. I know you. I'm probably sure there's a lot missing. But, yeah, there's definitely <laughs> got to be something because it's just right. over and over again, yeah. right? And every day I'm like, Ugh, that was a terrible idea, yeah. right? But, but the, then yeah. I do it. The question is, is it more rewarding than punishing? And there's something called the behavioral activation system. That's the part of our brain that says, hey, that's going to be really rewarding. You should do that. And there's a part of our brain that's called the behavioral inhibition system that says, you know, that could possibly be punishing. And I don't think you should do that. And for a lot of high sensation seekers, their inhibition system is sort of tuned down and their activation system is tuned up. So this is literally physiologically living in your brain yes. of who you are. So yeah. if I took someone's brain and transported it into another person's body right. and it was a high sensation seeker, that would carry over into the other person. If they're, of course, cultural and other kinds right, of things are right. going to influence it. But yeah, I mean, there's a huge biological component to those things for sure. Very interesting. So what got you on the track? Because this is a whole new yeah. a whole new world. Because I've met people like my sister used to have a friend who we took her to a Mediterranean restaurant. She ordered a hamburger <laughs> and then complained because the hamburger didn't oh, taste right. And yeah. I was like, I what? Yeah. You're so sheltered. I can't even right now. But now that I have this wealth of information, I'm like one, yes, I think you were sheltered because it was small town Louisiana. But additionally, right. perhaps you were a low sensation seeker. Yeah. Like maybe you just don't like the different tastes. So how did you stumble onto this field to begin with at all? Well, in a very unusual way, because this is a book, I've had an idea to write this book for a long time, but this is not the book I intended to write. Mm. Like I had a completely different title for a completely different book. What was the other book? The other book was called The Chaos Junkies Guide to Life. Well, that sounds cool. It is uncool. <laughs> so- I did not write that book. No. Um, yeah, you're like, thank you. I'm glad you like the book I didn't write. <laughs> yeah. it, so my life is amazingly predictable. My friends, if we all went out to dinner, could figure out what they think I wanted to eat. Mm. I have a very predictable life and I love my predictable life. As a clinical psychologist, I know I've had like students and clients who have had really chaotic lives. And we all know people that we would probably call a chaos junkie. You know, they've created chaos and unnecessary chaos in their life. I had a client several years ago in a different city who 
had trouble dating and I finally got him to go out on a date and he came back from the date and he said, oh my gosh, I met this great woman. It was a really great date. And I said, okay, well, how did it go? It's like really great. We're engaged. What? Wow. I was like, that went better than I expected. Yeah. No joke. Yeah. And so I thought, you know, maybe I should write a book to help people who are chaotic be less chaotic like Mm. me. And then they would be as happy as I am. And so I started diving into the research and I found this treasure trove of research about people who were high sensation seekers who were chaotic on purpose and that they could find calmness in chaos. And that was a really more interesting than what I was up to. Now, what's the difference between if there, I mean, if there even is one between someone who likes that chaos and is that chaos junkie and someone who's a, say, a drama queen? Mm. <laughs> or are there parallels? Are there, is there an overlap there? Um, it's probably overlap in okay. some ways. Maybe that's my next Because I, I know yeah. <laughs> the, drama, the drama queen's guide to calming the F down. Yeah. <laughs> How to stop ruining that's your the, life. Or other people's life. You can ruin your yeah. own life as well. Yeah. Just don't ruin my life. Yeah. Because <laughs> it reminds me of the same sort of thing. Like yeah. if someone causing chaos in their own life. Now, drama is different from chaos. Right, right. I, I absolutely realize that. But that same sort of mentality of if everything's going smoothly, I'm not happy. Right, right. Mm. But these are the people who like never seem to be prepared or those kinds of things. And that's sort of what I was thinking that the book was going to be about. But some of those, some of that chaos is chaos that we need in the world. We need people who can be calm in chaos because you're never going to get rid of all the chaos in the world. And you need people who can see through that chaos and people who can sort of guide you through that if you are in that situation to begin with. It's that balance of humanity. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Is your friend still engaged? Did they get married? Um, I don't know. Oh. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. So you were talking about your students earlier. Oh, yeah. And there's a section of the book where you talk about multitasking. Oh, yes. Or what or I call multi-slacking. Multi-slacking, <laughs> right. Because there's so much research that talks about how individuals truly can't multitask. Mm-hmm. And we end up just doing a bunch of things really badly. Yeah, but yet yeah. we all try to. Yeah. But there is a difference between high sensation seekers and low sensation seekers and getting work done in yeah. those atmospheres as well. Yeah. High sensation seekers are a little bit better at that. They're better at managing chaos. They can do lots of little things, especially ones that don't like getting bored. They can manage those multiple things. If I took your schedule, for example, and tried to do it, there's no way that I could. I'm pretty good unitasker and I can switch between one thing and another fairly quickly without having to gear back up again. But I get overwhelmed pretty easily. And a lot of high sensation seekers can probably manage multiple things better than I can. For me, it's like I've got something occupying and I don't think I have the ADD, right? Because that's such like an overdiagnosed thing now. But it's something that occupies part of my brain to help me from going in a hundred different directions. And as a result, only leaves me with enough brain power to do the tasks that I need to and like forces me to just knock that out really quickly. But if you had nothing going on and you were bored, that would be too much. Right, yeah. Yeah. And I've got like a gazillion tabs open and my cell phone and the office line and it's just like I don't get anything done either, you know? So it's that finding that balance between those things. Well, it's the same kind of thing when I work from home. Like if I finish up at home, I always turn the TV on. But Mm -hmm. it has to be some TV show that I don't pay attention to so that I'm not missing anything critical. But I find myself, if I'm working, I get bored if there's not any other stimuli around me. Right. Yeah. And there's so many, like I've got friends who have shows that they call work shows Mm. and they're shows that they watch while they're working. 
Yeah. I feel like that's a new genre that Netflix needs to work on. Work shows. Are you trying to get work done? Here the show. Yeah. (laughs) But seriously, but I also think that might speak to our culture's overstimulation. We check in. We were talking about this when we were walking to the studio to record, but, you know, we check Instagram every five seconds. You find yourself reaching for your phone or scrolling through it, you know, thumbing through the pictures aimlessly without taking it all in because we're so used to all the stimulation that now what would normally be stimulating, like watching a TV, is not enough. I need my phone as well. Need something so many else. Things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I had this idea for a book that I don't think I'll write because only I would think is interesting, which is about that, which is about our fear of being bored. And it was going to be called The Boring Book, but I think it would just be too boring. <laughs> I kind of like it. Yeah. I would read it. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think we have a fear of what's underneath that. Like, what do you do when there's nothing? Interesting. So I carry my backpack around with me everywhere and I always have work that I bring with me in case I'm going to get bored. Like you're going to be gone for a week, right? Yeah. And it's like, you know, a couple of hours meeting and I'm like, well, I got this book and I need to do this and I'll bring work with me just in case I'm bored. Yeah. And what would happen? That would be the worst thing. Yeah, it'd be terrible. Yeah. I remember going and buying the original iPhone and I was one of those people who waited in line at Linux Mall for the original iPhone. I was telling my friends that are younger than me that it's like, well, wait, then you couldn't sit there and play with your phone while you were waiting for the phone right. because the phone hadn't been invented yet. So what did you do for like six hours in Linux? And what I, did you do? I just waited. You just existed. Screensaver mode. I well, just waited. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's something this generation really isn't yeah. used to, that idea that you have to entertain yourself without the use of technology. Right. And it can be daunting you're not used to being alone with your thoughts and, you know, really sinking into yourself. And I mean, it can get boring as well. Six hours in a line. I don't know what I would do. I could do like an hour and a half, maybe. And then what happens? Then I'm just bored out of my mind. Yeah. Like, but yeah, nothing bad happens. Right. And that's actually how Zuckerman, who's the guy who came up with the Sensation Seeking Questionnaire, started his research, was research about sensory deprivation. Because there were some people who could sit there for hours and do nothing. And they were fine. And there were other people who couldn't stand it for even a couple of minutes. And they couldn't figure out what was the difference between these two groups of people. And it turns out that the people who couldn't stand it were these high sensation-seeking people that needed and really sort of fed off of and could be optimized by these highly chaotic environments. God, I would love to know of, of the people listening how many feel like they could be alone with their own thoughts for a couple minutes or who could last for hours. Right. Yeah. I mean, we've also given up the art of conversation, right? We don't talk to other people anymore. So now when you're in line, you know, the other day I was in line and I didn't have my phone on me because I accidentally left it in the car, which gave me a panic attack to begin with. But then I'm in line just looking at, I also love social watching, right? And we're always on our phones. Mm -hmm. We're not communicating with each other. What is that impact and has that changed for sensation seekers, right? Friendships, relationships, marriages. Mm -hmm. How does that all impact your sensation seeking? Well, I mean, interestingly, high sensation seekers just find anybody interesting. It doesn't have to be another high sensation seeker. It can be a low sensation seeker as well. And so there's a chapter in the book on relationships and the relationships that they have. But social media can sort of rescue you from ever having to be bored mm-hmm. for sure. Do they tend to marry other high sensation seekers um, or low sensation seekers? Either, either one. As okay. long as they find the other person different or interesting enough. There's a story in the book about a couple, Chris and Jess, who are both high sensation seekers and they do bouldering together, which is kind of like rock climbing, but on boulders instead, which apparently is dangerous and you could easily break bones by doing it. 
and because yeah. I would have assumed it was so much safer, honestly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's apparently boulder. it's really dangerous. And they just had a they were getting ready to have a baby at the time that they were doing, it, and they were trying to discuss what kinds of things they would do or not do anymore if they had a kid. And they talked a lot about how that trust gets built differently when they do. I mean, a lot of couples do stuff together, mm-hmm. but not stuff where one of them could get injured or die. Right. That's right. not usually a weekend <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah, at least um, if you end up in, what is it, a 27 hours type situation, you'll have yeah. someone else to saw your arm <laughs> There you off. go. Right. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Nothing says true love. Yeah. <laughs> but there's another story about a high sensation seeking woman who's married to a low sensation seeking guy and how that relationship works really well as well. Interesting. There's also this Easter egg that you've talked about in your book about the white rabbit. Ah, And we mentioned it a little bit ago, Mm -hmm. and you said, you know, it appears in Alice in Wonderland Mm -hmm. as she follows it down the rabbit hole. It appears in The Matrix. It appears in Star Trek and Jurassic Park and Stephen King novels. What is it about the white rabbit that's kind of like the flag of all high sensation seekers? There's a woman that calls herself the white rabbit, and which is this thing that you're supposed to chase to help you with a part of your journey. And she's the person that uses this service called couch surfing, which mm-hmm. is a service where you can stay on people's couches for free all around the world. And she decided that what she wanted to do was to travel for 300 days without exchanging any money whatsoever and just travel all around the world. And she did. She did. And to me, You know, because high sensation seekers travel differently than average and low sensation seekers. High sensation seekers want to immerse themselves in the culture and learn about the culture. They want to be on the ground and sort of figure things out. Low, 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 low sensation seekers love those like hop on, hop off bus tours. I can always tell who's a high sensation seeker. They say, hey, would you want to go on one of the... And they wince. Um, (laughs) I can usually tell. That's a good test for you guys to do at home with your friends and see if they're willing to do that. Would you want to go? on a hop on hop off bus tour only for like the first day of my travel so yeah. the way that i travel is like the first day i do like a hop on hop off and yeah. then i'd never look at it again <laughs> and then it's like let me right. just do like i do a lot of planned spontaneity yeah like i've got a bag literally in my trunk with an axe like fire starting with, kit wait, wait, and wait, stuff wait. like that do you say an axe yeah so i go to mount arabia a lot okay um so mount arabia is this that like, doesn't explain the axe. Beautiful. <laughs> so you got it so you're not allowed to go there at night And it's this beautiful mountain that's far away from the city where like light pollution really goes down. And it's, you know, maybe 20 or 30 minutes drive outside of the city and I'll randomly just show up there. Mm. But it's kind of dark. It's a little scary. And you need, you know, an an axe axe to in case you heard of mace. No, but I also need it to chop wood. Why are you chopping wood? Because <laughs> I spend the night there and it gets cold. Oh, but you're not allowed to. Right, okay. right. Oh, yeah. Okay. okay, this is making more sense yeah. now. Yeah, but so only not... a little more sense. <laughs> yeah, so that's like one of my places of like serenity. Like all okay. my friends know like every birthday for the past nine years, I'll end up at Mount Arabia. Right. with an X. Yeah. And yeah, and you're not allowed to technically be there. And so hopefully, I doubt the ranger is ever going to listen to this podcast. I'll share my secret. <laughs> so I'll pull in, turn my lights off right. so he can't see my lights. Right park the car very quietly, grab my like go bag, the axe from the car and like speed up the mountain. And it's like a good trek. It's about like a 20 or 30 minute trek before you're in this spot where you're far enough from the city and you can see the stars, you can see all these things. But every now and then people will come up there and you have no idea how crazy your person is, myself included, who's in the middle of a mountain at like three o'clock in the morning with an axe, with an axe. So 
two things. Um, if you do encounter someone and they have an axe, it's for the wood. Yes. Um, you hope. And like, what would you do with the axe, you think? So, I mean, I typically just use it right. to chop it's wood. Not, it's, I not a, do, it's not a weapon. It's not a okay, weapon. Okay. I do have a taser that I keep with me okay. for that. But typically, so I've got two strategies. One, <laughs> if it's a group of people. Right. I will usually stand up and just make sure that they see that I have the axe and people go in a different direction. Because, You'd brandish it. Yeah, okay. because you've got to be a crazy guy to be like on top of this mountain with the fire pit at like three or four o'clock in the morning, right? So right. people would typically avoid me. If it's just one or two people, I'll have the taser ready to go. I'll keep the axe in the other hand in case I need to use it. And people are often very like, hey, do you mind if we join you in the circle? And so it's like kind of a fire pit that we've made. And you're like, do you have your axe? Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, okay, how they, ready are you? They have to be high sensation seekers. <laughs> To walk up to a man with an axe in the dark. So over the past eight years, I've probably had maybe a dozen or so encounters with people who will like come, just sit down and will like have food or just hang out and share, like just kind of get to know each other. That's great. Never even exchange phone numbers. And we just, you know, kind of leave and go our own way. There was one time where I went up there with my best friend, Marcus, and the people coming up were like super loud and obnoxious. And we thought that they had a gun on them because we saw them from far away. And there's like in the shadows, you see a lot of things that made us really nervous. And then we went and hid in the woods with my axe and a taser just in case we needed to jump on that. <laughs> oh but the first time that I went up there, it's pitch black. I've never been there before. And it was like so exhilarating to be there because there is that sense of danger with the animals, with people. Like there's wow. so many things that could happen, but it's also a place that I find a lot of tranquility. Well, that's wow. why you rate higher on the scale right. as well because I hear that. I'm like, okay, well, I need to clarify this podcast does not condone, you know, breaking yeah, no, into a national not. park, do not vandalism and desecration of a national park, <laughs> or lighting a unauthorized fire yeah. in a national park, just for the yeah, record. Just... But- that's what I see. I'm like, are there wolves? Are there bears? Like, yeah. how do you protect yourself? Are there people who are out to get you? Are you going to fall off a cliff yeah. ledge? Like, for me, like, seeing the stars would be totally worth it. Right. But I would want a guided tour. Yeah, <laughs> like, you know, yeah. I'll so get on the bus. Right. Yeah, yeah, so there's a lot of planned spontaneity, right? So I, And now I don't, because I don't want to cut the trees down there. So I buy wood and I just mm. keep it in my car in case I ever need to go. And so I'm, like, ready to go. I always have water with me to put the fire out. So I'm, like, I've thought about, like, the stuff that can ruin my experience and stuff up there. But then the risk factor still has to be high enough for it to be enjoyable. I'm not going to lie. Next time you get into one of those, I follow too closely behind you car wrecks. I hope the cops make you pop your trunk and they see an axe, a taser, and firewood. I've definitely been worried about that. (laughs) Definitely been worried about that. I have a reason for it. It's like when you go to the grocery store or like some store and people check out and they've just bought like bleach and duct tape. (laughs) (laughs) And you try to put together what they're going to do. What 30 minute or less movie with yeah. yeah, and they're like your rape kit. You know what I mean? Because he's buying all this stuff, and she's just Gosh. like, "What are you doing with this?" Yeah. Like, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, there's. Yeah. But then you put it all together. I just make to... four trips, and I'll just go yeah. in and out. Of the get store. individual. Which stuff. looks yeah. like when they look back at your receipts, even sketchier because <laughs> yeah. you're trying to hide. I haven't, def- yeah. I haven't done that, but I've definitely right. been like, "This looks weird," yeah. so I'm going to do it this way. Yeah. And then people are like, "You thought about this? You're definitely hiding yeah. something." No, I just thought you would think this if I did it this way, so I did it on purpose. So I do fire eating as well, and the way that you did that is you. <laughs> how did you, we? How well, did I, I miss don't know. That. We missed that. You're going to have to do a sequel. We it's, went from baby octopus to fire. <laughs> to fire eating. 
So you literally light a piece of cotton. That's the easiest way to do it. Like on a small scale, oh, you easy. light a piece of cotton, put it in your mouth and it goes out because of the oxygen in the water. But you have to make sure that the cotton doesn't have any plastic in it. And so there's sometimes like strands of plastic uh, that will end up in cotton. Wow. And so I had like a 20 minute conversation with a store manager once being like, is there any plastic in here? Or is it truly 100%? He's like, why does that matter? Because he's thinking that I'm needing it for a medical purpose or something. And I was like, well, I'm trying to eat it. And if there's plastic, <laughs> then I'll burn my mouth. God. And he's like, are you messing with me right now? He was like, am I on an episode of Punk? Like, is Ashton Pitcher going to pop out? Are you really about to like You're this like that fire? weird woman who eats cat hair. She likes the taste oh, of that's texture. Disgusting. No. Man, that brings a whole new meaning to yeah. the touch, the feel of this cotton. Is, yeah, this <laughs> is. So in one of my previous jobs, I won't sure what we were doing, but it was something really, really important. And you can't be off by like any amount of what we do. And we just had a major screw up in this. Mm. And so we're trying to figure out how do we distract these people. And I literally put on a like fire eating show for the sea levels while our back office is trying to like scramble because we were about to lose this, this you account. Ate the fire. And I literally did a whole like show and tell. And so there's this like whole thing about like how our ancestors discovered fire and now we're so advanced that we can literally control something that we barely knew how to start. So then I light the fire and like I eat it and it bought <laughs> us enough time. I could wow. see some C level exec being like, that's cool, bro, but you got those financials. Yeah, you got, you got those, but yeah. So it bought us enough time for like back office to figure out what we needed to do. Wow. So it has come in handy in real life before. That's good. I one of those things where you can throw it to the ground and vanish yeah. like poof. I'll work on that next. <laughs> yeah, well, Dr. Carter, your book Buzz Inside the Minds of Thrill Seekers, Daredevils, and Adrenaline Junkies is out on Amazon, and we will definitely link up to it on our Facebook page too, along with that test on thrill seeking. So if you want to see where you fall on the scale, if you are more of a Munir who likes to eat fire and baby octopuses and, you know, break and enter into national parks, or if you're more like a Cassie who would enjoy a nice bus tour once in a while. <laughs> yeah. And I love, we'll end with the line that's the opening of your book. That's to all those who bring delicious chaos into my life. Ooh, delicious chaos. Dude, I like that. I love that. Thank you so much for joining yeah, us today. thank you for having me. It was awesome. Thank you. Dr. Kenneth Carter's book, Buzz, Inside the Minds of Thrill Seekers, Daredevils, and Adrenaline Junkies is available at all major retail booksellers. Most of us crave new experiences and sensations, whether it's our attraction to that new burger place or the latest gadget, newness tugs at us. But what about those who can't seem to get enough? They jump out of planes, climb skyscrapers, and will eat anything, even poisonous pufferfish, prompting others to ask, what's wrong with them? These are high sensation seekers, and they crave intense experiences despite physical or social risk. They don't have a death wish, but seemingly a need for an adrenaline rush no matter what. Buzz describes the world of the high sensation-seeking personality in a way that we can all understand. It explores the lifestyle, psychology, and neuroscience behind adrenaline junkies and daredevils. This tendency or compulsion has a role in our culture, but where is the line between healthy and unhealthy thrill-seeking? The minds of these adventurers are explained page by page. As I said, you can get the book now on Amazon or any major retailer, and you can take a sensation-seeking quiz and find out where you score at drkencarter.com. Coming up on the next episode of Real Tall Tales. From having to bribe Thai officials and liaising with royalty to something she did in a Parisian strip club with a celebrity and seeing this in her bathroom one night in Indonesia. I see something sort of moving along the wall. It takes me a second to register what it is, and all of a sudden I see the python head peep over the other side. Our next guest has enough crazy life stories to fill an entire book. Make sure you subscribe to Real Tall Tales so you never miss an episode. And if you have the time, we'd love if you left us a rating and a review. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.